broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline. You're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. Hello, everyone. We have a great show for you today featuring Mr. Michael Galapa with Landwatch. You can learn more about Landwatch at landwatch.org. Before that interview, though, we have a couple quick announcements with Mr. Peter Mountier from the Pacific Grove Chamber of Commerce. He's going to tell you about a couple of events tonight and uh, in the upcoming week. So that'll be interesting. But before we begin, let me remind you that I am Paul Wyant of Express Employment Professionals of Monterey County. At Express, we can help your company find great people. If you're struggling to find great people, give us a call today, 831-920-1230. Again, that's 831-920-1230. All right. With that, let's jump right into our interview with Peter, and then we'll be moving on to Mr. Michael Delapa. You're going to want to stick around for that it's a great conversation with Mr. Michael Delapa of Landwatch.org. All right. Now I'm here with uh, Peter Mountier of the Pacific Grove Chamber of Commerce, and he's going to tell us a little bit about tomorrow, today and tomorrow, uh, some jazz music going on. And then on Thursday of this week, an exciting annual event called Flavors of Pacific Grove. Uh, so tell us about these two events, Peter. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, obviously, Wildfish has become kind of a uh, local destination for for jazz. They they have performers almost every weekend, um, local talent. Uh, and leading up to the jazz festival, they've been doing this uh, jazz week at their restaurant. Um, Liz and Kelvin are, are big jazz fans, and they've built a, a wonderful um, community of enthusiasts around jazz, enjoying um, what local talent has to offer and, uh, and uh, providing just a, a great little spot for um, fans of jazz to, to gather and enjoy themselves. Wow. And that's today and tomorrow. Can you tell us uh, where, for people who are maybe not local, right. where is Wildfish? Wildfish it, um, is right in the heart of downtown PG. It's on the Victorian block, which is, is a, a well-known, very aesthetically beautiful spot. Um, the building has been there probably probably for about a century. Um, so it's it's a beautiful spot to enjoy some wonderful f- local food and, and um, immerse yourself in, in the local jazz scene a bit. Uh, it's been a, we haven't had a jazz club in Pacific Grove uh, ever, as far as I know. Um, so that the fact that Liz and Calvin are, are, are you know providing this for the community and um, kind of injecting some more jazz uh, places for people to go to enjoy that is, is really wonderful. Um, their address is 545 Lighthouse Avenue, uh, right downtown. Perfect. So put on your beret and head on over and listen. Yeah, to or 454, excuse me, 454 Lighthouse Avenue. Um, well, you'll get there. Either way, just yeah, get, get on the 400 block on Lighthouse and downtown PG and then listen for the sweet, melodious tones of jazz music. Uh, that's right. What is it? It's probably, uh, what time is it? Is it? I think it's five to nine. Is that right? Or what, yes. Yeah, perfect. And now, excitingly the flavors of pg that now this is uh actually didn't happen last year because of covid is that right so or no it did it did happen last yeah, year. yeah we did, did it, um yeah. yeah we we were able to do it last year um and and we were grateful for that and we've decided that we normally we do the events you know at a third kind of party location restaurants have to bring a bunch of their food and equipment over and, and we do it uh you know in a Silmar or spanish bay or, or somewhere and, and it's not uh it's not a problem that we had with the venue but logistically it, it became difficult uh for them to continue to do 
do that work on a business night. Uh, Thursday is kind of the unofficial start of the weekend. Um, so uh, last year with COVID, we were unable to gather indoors. And, and we, so we just shifted the event to an outdoor uh, style kind of walking tour thing. And, and people really liked it. And we got a sense both from the restaurants and our guests that that was uh, a format that they were comfortable with. And it, it ended up, um, it reduced our overhead for sure. So it was successful in that respect too. And uh, we decided to stick with with that um, again this year. And, and I'm delighted to say we've got more restaurants uh, than ever at the event. Um, and we've got uh, you know, we've got a lot more room for folks to participate uh, than we'd had last year. So I, I think we're very excited overall. It, it looks like we're on track to have a great event. Yeah. So can you tell us about pricing? Where would they buy tickets? And uh, you know, a few of the restaurants that are involved. Certainly. Uh, so tickets are available from the chamber. Uh, you can do that over the phone or online at pacificgrove.org. It's just all written out. Um, and uh, that's a $60 ticket. And what that gets you is uh, a tasting at 20 plus restaurants in downtown um, on Forest Hill and on the Central Erdley District. Uh, so you've got three or four different spots um, where you, you'd find a number of PG restaurants serving up, you know, small bites, small plates or tastings of, you know, beer and wine, things like that. That gets you kind of an unlimited amount of tastings at, at any of the restaurants on our list. We've got uh, 20 of them, including some mainstays, you know, Passion Fish and Fandango. Those restaurants have been here forever and they're and they're well loved uh, along with some newer folks including the Cafe Garani the Por- uh, Paraguayan Cafe down on Central Erdley uh, we've got uh, Mezzaluna they opened a couple years ago uh, and they've been doing fantastically uh, handmade Italian food fresh everything um, so it's a nice mix of, of new newcomers and, and and restaurant veterans and uh, you know a little bit of beer and wine as well and it's it's a nice mix of what we've got to offer so I think it's, customers it's like are getting a nice it's basically a $600 value for $60. So uh, sounds fantastic. Um, and you get to walk off all the calories between restaurants. <laughs> That's so right. About it. If you have some Alfredo or something, you can just, or clam chowder, you just move on to the next restaurant. You, you burn it right off during the walk. So That's right. Fantastic. Well, Peter, thank you so much again. Pacificgrove.org is the website where you can find those tickets. Uh, jazz uh, tonight and tomorrow. And then this coming Thursday, um, you can walk all around PG and delicious, uh, enjoy some of the delicious food from the many great restaurants. Anything else to add before you go, Peter? Uh, we're going to have live music at Flavors too. That'll be a, a fun thing. And uh, we hope that people come out and, and check out everything we've got to offer. There's 50 restaurants in Pacific Grove. Not a lot of people know that, but in two square miles, we got 50 plus restaurants. So there's really something for everyone. Wow. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, Peter, until next time, uh, stay safe and uh, we'll talk. All right. Okay. Well, let's move on to our second interview with Michael Delapa of landwatch.org. First question, Michael, always great to have you on the program. My first question is, uh, Gavin Newsom recently signed into law SB9. Uh, That's a bill that allows single-family homes to be converted from a single-family home to a duplex or even a fourplex. can you can you explain that law a little bit and uh, and let us know uh, Landwatch's position on it? Sure. Um, he actually signed two very interesting bills that are somewhat related, uh, SB nine and SB ten. And I'm just going to read from the um, legislative analyst uh, summary about them because that way there won't be any you know I won't be interpreting it. But Senate Bill nine requires ministerial approval of a housing development of no more than two units in a single family zone, the subdivision of a parcel zone for residential use into two parcels or both. So the implication is if you have a single family zone uh, and that accounts for about two thirds of all the zoning in the state 
that land use zone, that residential zone can be split in two. And on each of those parcels, you can build two units. So theoretically, you could put a fourplex on a uh, given residential unit. However, there are lots and lots of, um, you know, uh, reasons that that's not going to happen everywhere. And there has been research already done to sort of understand what the implications are. But the basic notion of SB9 is that it is making it easier to have different kinds of housing types in single family zones. Mm. Yeah. And, and so some of the positive things that have been said about this is it will increase density, uh, which is overall good for the environment. Uh, another thing it, that I've read as far as a positive thing for this is it will increase kind of ho- the, the dream of home ownership. So a lot of people think of the American dream as owning your own home and then accruing wealth through your, as, as your house is more or less the piggy bank and the vehicle to uh, help you out in your later years, like retirement, or, or if you have a multi-generational family. Uh, in the same house, it'll help you out. So this will help people maybe create rental properties and give them some sort of a pathway to the quote unquote American dream. Those are some of the positives that I've read about it. Uh, besides the environment and and maybe that that kind of like health of helping helping uh, everyone kind of have access to um, wealth. Can you can you name some of the other benefits that that are people are citing as well? Well, the the key, one of the key issues in the state of California is we have a severe housing shortage. So People have estimated that we're three to four mil- million units below what we should have be in balance with our jobs. So because of that, you know, the median price of a house in California is $800,000, almost $900,000. In Monterey County, it's roughly $900,000. So the housing shortage has really made it impossible for working families in many parts of the state to uh, get into the housing market. And Monterey County is a perfect example. The, um, you know, if you look at what's happened here for working families, um, the median income of a family in our county is about $71,000. The median price here is $887,000. So those two things are completely out of balance. And I think what SB9 is trying to get at, both in terms of the state and our county, is to provide for an increase in the supply of housing, which will, by definition, drop the the, uh, the cost, drop the price. Um, the other, I mean, key issue is that single family homes have increasingly gotten larger and larger and larger over time. So I think somebody once told me that the, um, you know, the average size uh, uh, um, garage today is the same size as the average size home in the 50s. So what that's done is just driven up the price of housing. And I think the other important piece of this legislation is it allows for smaller units on parcels. And again, more units, smaller units will be more affordable to more working families. So that I think is the key benefit. You mentioned uh, infill and the opportunity of having higher density that'll reduce this key measure for climate called vehicle miles traveled. So if you have higher density, you can have more mass transit, easier walking and biking. So I think all in all, um, and my board uh, agreed and supported SB9, for both the housing and housing equity and the climate piece. Yeah, I um I agree with that because I think a lot of the of the criticism is focused on how density will affect congestion and make life miserable because of congestion. But I I've lived in Japan and I live in Pacific Grove and people choose to live in those denser environments. I'll get more more uh, I'll get more into the criticisms because there's some that actually 
kind of are interesting to me is so, and you would have a better historical sense of this, uh, Michael, like Jerry Brown and, and pretty much for the last, I mean, you could say last probably 30 since Ronald Reagan, even there have been numerous attempts by governors to increase the housing stock in California, because this has been a problem that's recognized for a long, long time. Um, those other efforts have largely, I, I mean, I think a, a majority of people who study this would say they have been a failure. Why is this better a better way to do it than to maybe reduce regulations like revise CEQA? Why, I mean, well, this is kind of a revision of CEQA, but why why this way? Why not just l- allow more freedom? Well, I I guess you have to define what that more freedom would be or what those alternatives would be. It's hard to speak in the abstract. I think the you know the issue in California is that state government has delegated to local governments. Um, the responsibility, the authority, and the responsibility to to manage housing, to zone for housing, and so the state over the years has tried to um, create certain incentives and um, make it easier to have housing. They've had now in recent years more um, regulations that would require local governments to zone for more housing. But as we know, zoning for more housing doesn't necessarily produce more housing. It simply uh, you know says there might be more housing. Um, you know, the state has is, is a, a there's a conundrum, and the conundrum is everybody agrees there needs to be more housing, but many of the laws, the tax laws, Proposition 13, other laws, make it really hard for local governments to want to have more houses, and so you have this conflict between zoning laws, which um, you know are uh, are are one part of sort of the state constitution and taxes and the ability of local governments to control their own destiny there. So you know historically uh, <laughs> these things have been out of kilter um, because as you increase den- increase density, you increase the number of people that need services, schools, and all those things are constrained by Prop 13. Mm-hmm. So um, you know there there is this ongoing tension in, of course. As the state has aged, um, you have fewer people that seem interested in investing in the next generation. And I think, you know, we see that regularly with, um, you know, very uh, significant neighborhood opposition to, to density. So I think that there's a lot of challenges. Yeah. And I, to frame that, uh, interestingly, I asked this question of Wendy Rudescu, and, and this is directly applicable, is because if you have someone who owns, say, a $2 million home and they've owned it for 30 years and they may pay $150 a month uh, in property taxes because of Prop 13 and their neighbor next door uh, will pay you know, $1,500 a month. Now, yeah. now, in addition to that, so that's already encouraged people to never sell their house or pass it generationally on. Now we're actually giving them the ability to put in a fourplex, still pay the same low property taxes, increase the demand on the local school districts, you know, through this rental thing, because these there'll be younger families that are renting and then and maybe have kids without an increase in the tax base. And oh, by the way, they're able to charge market rate. Maybe this is assuming no increase in the housing supply. They can charge market rate. So a $20 an hour employee may be giving $11 an hour of their wage to this rich person benefiting from Proposition 13 who, who may not even live in California. It's kind of perverse. Uh, you know, It's been a perversion of incentives. I, I don't know. That's kind of what I presented to Wendy. And it's kind of what you're saying a little bit. Am I kind of out of line there, you think? Or? Well, I, I think the one piece, and let me just say these housing bills are very complicated. I think one of them, 900 pages. We have not had a chance to fully um, evaluate it. I'm not sure, I, I, and I can't speak with authority on what the tax uh, property tax implications are of 
a lot split in completely rebuilding. So my, um, I just don't know. And, okay, and yes. so I don't know whether if you do a lot split and you do, you know, two duplexes, whether you would be reassessed uh, for, you know, incrementally more value or how that, so. Well, I did. And so another criticism getting on from that, and, and those are, I mean, these are interesting things that may uh, over time will, will be, I think, fascinating. Another criticism is like covenants. So if you have uh, not to pick on it, but if you have a, a, a gated community, like we have several in, in Monterey County, as you know, what right do the homeowners who, who have that private community have under this under this legislation? Uh, again, I am not entirely sure. I'd have to dig into you know the details uh-huh. more. Um, and I don't want to, I guess, I don't want to speak on things I haven't really fully evaluated. So I don't know the answer. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fair. It's, I, I think those will be interesting questions because if, don't, do you think if they don't give enough autonomy to those, uh, like the gated homeowners, it could prevent some, some wealth from leaving the state. And that, I mean, that's a lot of people don't like talking about that because, you know, but we do need, we do need wealthy people to invest. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's one of those things. Um, maybe we can, uh, talk a little bit about land watch, uh, and how, how are things going with Landwatch uh, and Campus Town and the development and marinas and, and other things like what what's the what are you what are you guys what's your main focus right now what are you seeing out there? Well, we're seeing a lot of developments on hold. Um, you know, Campus Town hasn't moved uh, significantly in the last two years. I think there's some internal discussions about tearing you know possibly tearing some buildings down, but you know it is not substantially moved ahead. And that's pretty indicative of a lot of things. Um, You know, there has been quite a bit of new development in Marina, um, you know, consistent with plans that have been approved earlier. One of the big areas of concern for us are these very substantial annexations that are being posed in Soledad and uh, Gonzales. And um, these are annexations, for example, Gonzales is proposing to um, add 6,000 homes to uh, residences to a city that has 2,000. So they're going to quadruple in size or planning. To, uh, though that, that annex will eat up farmland and it will be largely uh, medium and low density single family homes. So our interest in um, Gonzales and in Soledad is to try to right size these housing projects. We, we absolutely agree and are supportive of having more housing. We, we think that it's a critical, you know, as I was speaking earlier, it's a critical issue statewide and it's a critical issue in Monterey County. However, you know, we have already in Monterey County approximately 20,000 units that have been already approved in different jurisdictions. So we have a very large inventory. In Gonzales, what we would like to see is um, a closer alignment of the housing units that they're proposing with the job projections so that those things are in closer alignment and a different mix of housing so that housing provides for more apartments and entry-level houses for people that are trying to get into the housing market. So rather than having so many large single-family homes, we want to see apartments, condominiums, townhouses, so that people can move up that, that housing scale that many of us moved up. You know, we started renting and then we were able to buy a small condominium. And then at some point you move into, uh, you know, a single family home. You know, I, I think um, yeah. for those listening, uh, it's, it would be, you're probably familiar recently, and I don't know what the status of this is, is they were going to build a bus lane from Marina to like Monterey, I think. And then, mm-hmm. so that was, that was sued. They, they sued against MST to build it because of the, the dunes habitat and stuff. And there was some environmental reasons for that. And so now when we talk about the expansion of 
Soledad. And there's a larger point here is like, it's kind of like, why do, why does Landwatch know better what should be done with that land than those people know? And, but the bigger point is I, that often doesn't have purchase with me because it's, I think, well, Landwatch is really trying to protect the environment or trying to, to do sustainable growth because we're concerned about global warming. That kind of makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is if you centralize power or if you allow the power into the people who have no, you know, really direct, uh, they don't have the bear the direct consequences of their policies. So if you're telling someone how to build a house in Soledad or how to build a bus lane in Marina, we're all going to die someday. And now we've more or less centralized the power for that. And then whoever gets that ring in the future can do whatever the heck they want. That kind of, to me, would be a greater risk. But could you could you kind of address those two issues for people who, who have that criticism? I'm sure you've heard that before. Sure. So I want to make just absolutely clear that, that Landwatch has been supportive of the MST project. We are not party to the lawsuits in in fact, our um, you know priority, I think, as you and I have talked about, is really projects that reduce global warming. And um, you know, there are, are many consequences for any project. And um, you know, our priority has been to look long term on what we have to do there. And it's such a significant problem. The, the you know one of the um, key models for me in land use uh, is the state of Oregon. And back in the '70s, under Republican Governor Tom McCall, they passed what I think is really the standard. Um, the best standard in our country for um, planning. So the state has a series of goals. Those goals include everything from economic development, farmland protection, to um, establishing urban growth boundaries. And within those goals, local governments develop plans and those plans then go for state approval. So there's a set of principles that are goal-based and a process whereby local governments manage to those goals. And I think what has happened in California is we have not established clear goals for what we want to do with uh, long-term growth. And so the coordination of private interests and public interests are misaligned. So yes, when you have uh, housing, you know those are principally private interests developing, and we understand in our, our state about eighty percent of all housing. So we focus on understanding the economics of that, those private markets. But along with those private markets, you have public markets for sewer, water, schools, roads, all the other infrastructure that must support them. And those two things have to be coordinated. So. So right now we have a you know a poor alignment of um, those interests statewide, and they play out in our in our area. So for example, you know if you look at the job projections um, in our county, they don't align at all with the kind of housing that's being uh, distributed. You know they certainly don't align with what. Gonzalez is proposing. If you look at the incomes that are going with those jobs, they don't align with the mix of housing that's being proposed in Gonzalez and Soledad. So if your principal is providing housing for working families and making sure that governments have adequate infrastructure, and those are two key goals of Landwatch, then as we examine projects, we look both at the public side and the private side in terms of very specific principles. So, um, you know, I, I go back to um, always go back to the principles because this isn't about our opinion or whatever. It, it's about the data that we draw on both, you know, in terms of economic data, socioeconomic data, e- issues of equity, issues of climate. So we bring all that together in trying to evaluate these projects. It, it is. I think it's fascinating because I'm, I'm just endlessly, it's kind of interesting, like about, I think a lot of times what, and at least what I think, I'm, this is totally me talking about Landwatch's goals. They're kind of trying to predict the future where 
as I think the the libertarian view is they like if you take Pacific Grove and Monterey, if we if we went back to the 1890s, Land Watch would probably have created a much different uh, Pacific Grove and Monterey. I mean, there'd probably still be salmon in the bay, but the the communities maybe would have less charm. Maybe they would have never gotten built. But because uh, sometimes I think what the preloading, like trying to predict the future does instead of just letting people do what they do and then kind of trying to correct the mistakes that are being made is there was an economist and they used this example. They said, well, what if instead of the rules that we have now about four-way stops, we actually had this rule where if you came to a four-way stop, you had to get out of your car and go to the center of the intersection and discuss with all the other occupants of the cars who gets to go first because who's in the biggest hurry. And then you'd go back to your cars and then you'd have these sequential uh, conversations about who gets to go first based on whether you're going to the hospital or you're just going to get an ice cream. And I feel like sometimes regulations can have that, which is basically an externality of regulations, an externality of it's a, a cost. And what it could end up doing and what I think it's done a lot in, in California is it makes people go to Nashville, <laughs> quite frankly. So oh, I, I, I know, because I've talked to you before, Michael, I know you're sensitive to that concern. What what would you have to say to people like me that kind of have that gnawing at me? I mean, it's like, I know I've been to Nashville, I've been to Oklahoma City, and they don't seem environmentally horrible, and they seem very well run, and it seems like they're thriving communities. What, what are we, can we do differently to be more like them in the right way? Well, I, you know, I can't speak specifically to those communities. I don't, you know, I don't really know them. Um, you know, I, I guess I would go back to the well, notion. Pick one that you like. I mean, pick pick a great. Well, pick, I, I I would pick Portland. Portland to me is a, a. Well, there's the homeless problem, so I think people would have. Do you have another uh, one? I think mean, there's there's a. Well, you could problem. go Victoria, Canada. Victoria, Canada is a Portland without homeless. So I think yeah. maybe that that's what I'll use in my mind. So Portland, what do you think? Yeah. So so well, Portland, you know, it's a product of you know many years of urban. Uh, thoughtful urban design. It has a great mix of housing, highly walkable, bikeable, mass transit, um, you know, very attractive to industries, um, you know, a very vibrant, young, creative well, populace. I, it's hard though, because they just had the, the Antifa just burned down half the city. So, and I agree with you, walkable, because the size of the city blocks from an urban planning state. I mean, every city should be, should use Portland sites blocks. So I understand part of it, but socially they're, they're a mess right now. I think most people, anyway, go ahead, Michael. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I, I will. Again, I think you're asking me in terms of land use. Um, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, I don't think California has any, uh, is any grave danger of, um, you know, losing its economic engine. I've heard, you know, for the 40 plus years I've lived in the state, you know, housing has been a constant issue. People have always said, you know, there's going to be this mass exodus. There continues to be an incredible vibrancy of job creation in the Valley, Silicon Valley, and in LA, San Diego, these urban areas that just continue to generate new companies, new jobs. Our area, um, you know, doesn't have that sort of economic engine. We're driven by beauty and farmland and and education. So, you know, the, the drivers here, I think they're going to continue to attract people kind of regardless. And I think for us, really, the challenge is we've got, you know, working families here that are making $71,000. And, you know, my organization's focus is, okay, how do we address the needs of the people living and working in our community? You know, we're, we're not so, you know, concerned about the millionaires buying properties on the coast. That's going to happen. You know, they come from Monaco, they come from everywhere around the world. This is 
one of the, you know, as you and I both know, one of the most attractive places in the world to be. So demand will all, for coastal property will always be worldwide. There, there is That's not going to change. And indeed, with climate change, you can imagine that many places in the South and the Southwest are going to become unlivable and places like uh, on the coast are going to continue to be more attractive. So, you know, our, our problem, I don't think is going to be losing people. It's going to be increased demand for what is, you know, it has always been an amazing area. So I think we're kind of out of time, Michael, but I really enjoy uh, talking to you and, and hearing your perspective and sharing some of the views of other people, other guests on the program have towards, um, you know, a lot of these issues. And I, I think there's probably going to be continue to be important issues for the county and the country, really. And uh, I always, I always like talking to you. So whenever you want to come back and talk about these things, I, I really uh, I enjoy it. So. But, well, I'm delighted. I really appreciate the opportunity to engage in these conversations with you. I find them challenging and provocative. And, uh, you know, you've raised some questions I've got to dig deeper into. So for me, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I welcome any of your viewers who are interested in learning about us to go to landwatch.org and, you know, look at what we do and feel free to contact me directly. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. I'm Paul Wyan of Express Employment Professionals in Monterey County. At Express, we can help your company find great employees. So if you're struggling to find great employees, please give us a call today, 831-920-1230. And if you are a person looking for a job, we work with dozens of local employers. So give us a call today, 831-920-1230. As always, thank you to Mr. Mark Carbonero, the greatest producer in the business, and David Marzetti, the host of the Saturday Morning Shag Bag Radio Show at 9 a.m. right here on 101.1 FM and 1460 a.m. Well, don't change that dial because coming up next is Business Sense Radio with Mr. Edward King. That tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June. Get their kicks stomping on a dream.